Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 9. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We will begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 37 together this morning. The gospel according to Mark chapter 9, verse 1 to 37. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does First come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written that the Son of Man, of the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, When the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. 
After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. There is some precise applicability to this morning's sermon, the passage that we're looking at, um, to the students who were part of the retreat uh, yesterday until this morning. In thinking about the idea of mountaintop experiences or retreat-type experiences. Now, this isn't necessarily going to be true for every student that was there. I'm taking for granted that some of the students actually really enjoyed being there and benefited, Um, but I'm not putting that pressure on you if you're not included in that crowd. Um, But oftentimes when we do pull away from the normal, mundane life and we get alone with other believers, and we spend more intentional time with the Scriptures open, trusting that God will use that time to grow us spiritually, it ends up being a remarkably beneficial time. I remember some 20 years ago, I was asked to speak to a group of students. They were high school and college students who had been at summer camp the previous week. I I didn't know them at all. I didn't know a single student there. I just had recently met the student minister at that church and he had asked me to come and share something on the first night when they got back from spending a whole week away. And I, I don't remember a whole lot of what I said, but I remember that the title of the sermon was, Don't Put the Campfire Out. And the idea is the the fire, the spiritual fire that's lit in those settings, we want to carry it with us, at least in some measure. Um, But we aren't always afforded that blessing. And we see that happening here as we considered last week the transfiguration, the glory that was revealed and exposed there on top of the mountain. And that quickly dissipates when they leave the mountain and go back to the valley where real life happens. It's not the only time in Scripture that we see this happening even. You remember Moses being on top of the mountain and the glory of the Lord was there. I mean, You remember what Moses found at the bottom of the mountain? 
a bunch of religious wackos building a golden calf. I mean, from the glory of the Lord to people building a golden calf and calling it God and planning to worship it. So this is common. We're in good company if we find life difficult in the trenches. But it doesn't mean that we should just wallow there. And the story that we read here in Mark's gospel this morning of Jesus interacting with his disciples, with the crowd, with the Father and this demon-possessed boy is helpful, and I trust that it will be encouraging to us, primarily pointing out this reality, that life in the valley, which is life in general for all of us, requires faith and prayer, or to combine them, life in Christ in this world requires believing prayer. I've split the passage up into four sections. I say sections rather than points. You can call them points. If you don't, then there won't be any points. So we'll call them sections. I have it noted as different scenes. We're transitioning from one scene to the next as we walk through the passage this morning. And I trust that the Lord will help us glean truth that will help us from the passage. So scene one is take it to Jesus. Scene two, the pity and power of Jesus. Scene three, Jesus takes it from bad to worse. And scene four, failure and fear. All right, scene one, beginning in verse 14 is where we're picking up today. We'll work through verse 32. Beginning in verse 14, when they came back, to the disciples. That is when Jesus, Peter, James, and John came back down the mountain from the transfiguration to the disciples. They saw a large crowd around the disciples and some scribes arguing with them. We feel what I've emphasized already. Sublime mountaintop glory to the everyday mundane life of man and demon discord. It's pure pandemonium at the bottom of the mountain. The the first thing that Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, witness are the other nine disciples arguing with the religious leaders. What are they arguing about? Well, we saw in the reading and we'll continue to see. The scribes had witnessed the disciples' failure to heal this little boy. And now they're basically mocking their incompetence. You say that you have the power of the Lord on your life. You say that you're anointed by him. You say that you can cast out demons. There's no evidence of that. But the disciples had been given the authority to cast out demons. Back in chapter 6, Jesus summoned the 12. He began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Not only had it been given to him, it had been tested and proven. They'd been successful in their previous attempts. Again, chapter 6, verse 13, and the disciples were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. But on this occasion, on this day, at the bottom of the mountain, they have failed, and it has led to public shame. It's worth noting that these religious leaders 
also lack the ability to do any real good for this boy and his desperate father. They're not trying to help the situation. They're just mocking the nine disciples who have proven incompetent. They offer no help at all. They simply rub it in the face of the disciples that they cannot do what they claim to be able to do. Now, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And Jesus said, what are you discussing with them? Right, to his disciples, what are you talking about with these scribes? He didn't ask because he didn't know. He asked to see what they would say. Who answered? The disciples had nothing to say. It's like, shame immediately. Oh, we are arguing with the scribes. And Jesus just asked what we're talking about. And we're actually trying to make up some reason, probably, for why we're failing at what he has given us the power to do. But the scribes don't speak up either. They don't say, well, actually, your disciples here are failing at what you've called them to do. We watched them try to cast the demon out of this boy, and they've been unsuccessful. It's as if everyone in the crowd realizes how foolish they are to be arguing while this little boy and his father are suffering. Now, it may be too early in the sermon for application, but we're going to consider that anyway. We are very prone to this kind of problem, being engaged in all kinds of things, maybe even good things. Maybe they were discussing some of the wonderful details of the finer points of orthodox theology. Maybe they had really good reasons to back up their failure. Maybe the scribes were encouraging them to call out on their God, similar to the way that Elijah had to the false prophets on Mount Baal. But this can be too common among us. While people are suffering and hurting and needing help all around, we don't have to look far to see that that Christians are bickering among themselves and arguing about this or that rather than recognizing that there's a world that needs Jesus. But they had failed. Not just the religious scribes, the disciples. They had failed to focus on Christ, losing sight of Him and what He had called them to do. Not seeing the world through His lens. Jesus doesn't even set them straight for their arguing. He goes for the issue at hand that the primary issue at hand, that there is a little boy suffering, there is a father that is hurting because of the suffering of his son. When we remove Christ from the center of our lives, we are prone to misunderstand situations, to give the wrong emphasis in certain situations. Winning an argument with the scribes that day has no eternal value. But helping this little boy, helping his hurting father, has eternal, immediate and eternal value. 
back to the question, who answers Jesus? Jesus said, what are you discussing with, the, with them? And one of the crowd answered him. This is the father. Teacher, I brought you my son, my son that's possessed with a spirit. This demonic spirit has made him mute. It seizes him, and when it does, it slams him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth, and he stiffens out or is basically withered up. I told your disciples to cast it out. I came looking for you. Don't miss that. This father knew where the help was. I brought him to you, Jesus. You weren't there. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. He had not brought his son to the religious leaders. He had not even brought his son to the disciples of Jesus. He had brought his son to Jesus. This desperate man knew where to find hope. And he brought his son to Jesus. And after hearing from this desperate man regarding what has happened, and Jesus recognizes this is what the argument is about, Jesus answered them, verse 19, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? I mean, we feel bad for everybody having to be put in their place. Jesus responds with exasperation at the unbelieving, quarreling crowd. How long shall I be with you? This is an urgency in Jesus' tone. He's... He's in a hurry. How long am I going to have with you? He knows he doesn't have that much time. He's mentioned already. He's told his disciples, though they don't understand it, yet he's told them, I'm headed to the cross. He knows he's not going to be with them forever. But he wants their hearts to be softened and their minds to understand. He has shown them already that they aren't seeing things as clearly as they ought. He desires them to see things more clearly. He knows he will not always be with them. And then he says, bring him to me. This is what the father wanted. Teacher, I brought you my son. That's where he began. And so Jesus says, bring him to me. Jesus Jesus takes control of the situation in order to rectify it, to remedy it. He is the great remedy. In fact, there is no situation that Jesus cannot remedy. None. The most difficult situation that you can imagine, He is the remedy. The most trying circumstance of your life, He is the remedy. That impossible situation in your friend's life, in your family's life, He is the answer. There is no situation that Christ cannot remedy. We ought to hear Him saying to us all here, Bring them to me. Bring it to me. I will help. I can help. Come to me. When he says to the man, the father, in the midst of the crowd, bring him to me. Oh, that we would hear him saying to us all, bring your difficult situation. Bring your messed up life. Bring your friends and your family. Bring them to me. I am the great remedy. I can help. which then transitions into scene two. 
beginning in verse 20. The pity and power of Jesus, which we see almost every week, is very difficult. I would quickly run out of words in the thesaurus if I, if I tried to use different words, so I just use it every time. We see the pity of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, and the power, the might, or the strength of Jesus. Uh, it, it's easy for me to come up with those synonyms because I'm doing it every week because we're looking at the life of Jesus, and this is what we see Him displaying towards an unbelieving, lost, and hurting world is pity and power. When Jesus says, bring Him to me, they brought the boy to Him. When the demon sees Jesus, verse 20, immediately it throws him into a convulsion, falling to the ground, rolling around, foaming at the mouth. Sometimes when the remedy is being applied, it gets worse before it gets better. Oftentimes when we seek to expose the root issue of what we're facing in life, It'll get worse before it gets better, but the promise is that it's going to get better. Jesus shows concern for the boy, recognizing what he's been going through as he witnesses this. And so he asks the father, verse 21, how long has this been happening to him? O unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? How long shall I be with you? And then to the Father, how long? How long has this boy been being ransacked with this kind of difficulty? And the answer is really hard to stomach. You put yourself in this father's situation from childhood, he says. Since early childhood, Here's his answer, for a long time, Jesus, a long time. It has often thrown him into the fire, often, again and again. It's been happening a long time, and, and not that it happened a long time ago and it happened again recently, but again and again, it has often been the case that this demon is terrorizing my son, often into the fire. Imagine the scars from singed and burned skin in this boy that again and again, very often since early childhood, has been thrown into the fire in an attempt to destroy him, or into the water can consider the damage to his lungs, to his brain, the fear in his own mind that this boy must have every time that he sees a well or a stream or a river. The father has witnessed it time and again, an attempt to destroy his own son. He has watched the attempt at destroying his son. How many times has he heard the screams and found him burning? How many times has he heard the splashing struggle for life and thought, oh no, not again? This is the desperation that brought him here to Jesus. I brought you, my son. I brought him to you, Jesus. And he continues in verse 22. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Take pity on us 
Here's the father expressing that he's just as affected as his son. He doesn't just say, take pity on my son. We're all affected. We're all being tormented by this demon. The father is hurting as much as the boy, and understandably so. So here he is crying out for compassion. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus responds to the situation in a way that we've come to expect. And though we've come to expect it, it never gets old to see again how Jesus responds with pity and with power, exactly what the Father is pleading for. Jesus shows compassion again to a sick child and his hurting father and family. Look at Jesus' response in verse 23. If you can. That's what the Father said, if you can. You can imagine the helplessness of the Father. Imagine all the things they must have tried. But again and again, this demon was terrorizing his son. And so he comes. I I brought him to you, Jesus. If you can do anything, Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Here's Jesus' answer to the hopeless, helpless father. I can do all things. There is nothing I cannot do. I can heal your son. I can help you. You remember back in chapter 1 when a leper came to Jesus? You're familiar with the story. He came beseeching Jesus, falling on his knees before him. Do you remember what the leper said? If you're willing, you can make me clean. The leper doubted Christ's willingness, not his ability. Absolutely confident in his ability. You can make me clean. I just don't know if you're willing. Jesus said, I am willing. Be cleansed. But here in this story, the father is doubting Christ's ability, not his willingness. He's in conversation with him. It's like he knows that Jesus is willing. He's obviously heard throughout the village, that Jesus has healed before. That's why he's come to Jesus. He knows where to go to find help, but he's doubting Christ's ability. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. He's not even specific in what he's asking for. Just show us some compassion. Show us some help. That's what we need. And Jesus said, all things are possible. I can do anything. There's nothing I cannot do. Christ is willing and able. Not only that, he's not just the same in Mark 1 and Mark 9. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same in Mark 1, Mark 9, this morning in your life and in mine. He never changes. He is willing and able to come to the rescue and apply the remedy of his own life and death and resurrection and ascension and the promise of his return to apply it to your soul and your situation, to apply it to you if you don't know him, to grant you gospel grace to trust in him, to turn from your sin. This Christ is willing and able to come alongside 
you, if you do know him, yet you find in the valley of life that things are difficult and life is tough and circumstances are dire. He comes alongside both willing and able to show pity, to be compassionate, and to apply his remarkable, unmatched, omnipotent might in your life to remedy the situation for his glory and for your good. All things, he says, are possible to him who believes. Now, this requires a little bit of clarification because this does not mean that with faith you can accomplish anything. You don't have to go far to find someone to tell you that, but finding someone to lie to you is not very difficult these days. It doesn't mean that with faith you can accomplish anything. It means that those who have faith do not limit God's power or ability. Our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is in God. He doesn't lack power. He doesn't lack the ability to do anything. Can God do all things? The kids probably aren't there yet in the catechism classes. The answer is yes, he can do all his holy will. There's nothing he cannot do. He's not limited by man. If you lack faith, he isn't limited in his power. Your view of him is limited. Our understanding is limited because we do not trust him as we ought. Those with faith do not limit his power or ability. Those with faith do not question his power or his ability. Those with faith fight to not doubt his power and his ability immediately. So Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Or, more pointedly, I can do anything. I am very capable I'm not just willing, I am capable to accomplish what you need in your life to help you and show compassion to you. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Verse 24, what a, what a wonderfully encouraging verse. Immediately he cries out, I do believe, help my unbelief. It's as if he's saying, even in doubting, I, I know there's doubting there. It's, it was expressed in the way that I said that, by questioning if there's anything you can do. So I, I am doubting. You've exposed that. But I do believe. That's why he's there. We know there's a measure of hope. There's a measure of confidence, or he wouldn't have shown up there that day in order for Jesus to help him and his son. There is faith being exercised. How can we in a helpful way, understand where this father is with regard to belief and doubt and what can we learn and implement regarding this father's crying out, I do believe, help my unbelief. As I said, he's saying, even in doubting, yes, I believe, but, but there's a measure of doubt there. So doubt in the life of the Christian can have two dangerous ditches. What you, you should hear from the outset is that doubt is not necessarily a problem. But there are ditches that make doubt dangerous. One would be being too soft on doubt. Almost celebrating uncertainty. 
which would allow a permissiveness in life that would eventually give way to unbelief. So you don't want to be too soft on doubt. But the other ditch, as you might imagine, is the opposite of that, being too hard on doubt. That is demanding that any uncertainty at all is sin, which will result in an unhealthy pursuit of perfection that will leave a Christian with guilt-ridden despair. So there are these two ditches of being too soft or too hard. I think it's helpful for us to understand that the enemy of faith is not doubt. The enemy of faith is unbelief. Think of it this way. Here's the line for faith and here's the line for unbelief. You cannot be on both planes. To believe is to be of one mind about accepting something that is true. Your mind is made up. You're convinced. This is reality. This is true. To disbelieve or lack of belief is to be of one mind about rejecting that truth. This is not true. Those planes do not intersect. Doubt runs between the two. Somewhere in between. The lines don't intersect, but we vacillate between the two. Doubt causes us to do that. So faith is absolutely important. And because it is absolutely important, doubt is very serious. But because doubt is not unbelief, doubt is not ultimately fatal. Unbelief is the problem, not doubt. So the boy's father is saying, I'm doubting. Oh, but I believe. He believes. That's why he came to Jesus. And so he's, convince me. Convince me again. Show me that you can do all things. Prove your willingness yet again. And we can see why he would have such a tendency to doubt, because he had seen God's people fail at what they were claiming they could do. So we have a tendency to doubt people. It's very common, almost expected, that we would doubt people because people are fickle. The Father is doubting Christ, not because of Christ, but because of Christ's people. It's actually an encounter with the man Christ Jesus that increases his faith in Jesus. He came to Jesus, he found the disciples, he begins to doubt. He he recognizes the doubt. Oh, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Convince me even further. And he continues increasing in his faith during this encounter with Jesus. It's a very good reminder for us to not judge God and his faithfulness based on his people's fickleness or foolishness. And it's easy for us to do. We've all done it. And we've heard other people do it. Don't doubt him. Not his pity, not his power. Not his willingness, not his ability. Jesus sees that there's a crowd rapidly gathering. Again, imagine this situation. The the father is getting the help that he needs. The boy's still suffering. This encounter is happening. The boy is still suffering. Jesus has called the boy to himself. 
the demon made one last great show of it, then the father has been talking with Jesus. Verse 25, from bad to worse. I mentioned already, sometimes that's the way things seem to go. Jesus saw that the crowd was rapidly gathering. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. So the spirit itself is not unable to hear and unable to speak. It is a spirit that caused deafness and muteness in the boy. So from bad to worse, things seem, they don't really go from bad to worse. They just seem that way to our eyes, the way that we see things. But it's as if the boy goes out of the frying pan into the fire. I command you to come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into convulsions, verse 26, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. So the demon came out, but it's as if the boy's dead. From possessed to dead, from bad to worse, no doubt. But again, the the crowd here, that they're so quick to come to a conclusion, a wrong conclusion, and the same can be true for us. If we're quick to draw conclusions and circumstances, we are much more likely to come to a wrong conclusion. And that's what happened here with the crowd. Look at verse 18. The demon caused the boy to stiffen. You, you probably even have a note there that it's to wither away. It's like his body was shriveling up in these moments when he was attacked by the demon. You know what? Jesus has dealt with this before. Back in Mark chapter 3, there was a man whose hand was withered. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Or the demon crying out in verse 26. It's nothing new for Jesus. He's dealt with it before. Back in chapter 1, a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Or what about this demon leaving the boy as if he's dead? He became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He's dead. Jesus has dealt with this before too. Chapter 5, taking Jairus' daughter by the hand, he said, little girl, get up. And Mark uses resurrection language here with intentionality. Jesus took him by the hand, this little boy, and raised him. That's the conversation he's been having with his disciples The promise of the resurrection, it's coming. Here's an evidence of it. I have the power to raise the dead. Jesus not only drove out the demonic spirit, but he also gives the boy new life. And then finally, the last scene, scene four, failure and fear. They came into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately. They're too ashamed to ask him out in public. Why could we not drive it out? 
They're attempting to learn from their failure, which we can appreciate. We should always try to learn from our failure. That's one of the best ways that we learn, actually, is from failure, if we respond to it appropriately. Jesus said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. They went on out, began through Gal- going through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anybody to know about it. He was teaching the disciples, telling them what he's been telling them all along. But here it is, stated even more clearly, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask him. Why are they afraid to ask him? I mean, he has just said, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? He did just refer to the speech coming out of Peter's mouth as a spokesperson for the rest of them as having, of talking like Satan when he was rebuking Jesus. But it's also possible that maybe they were afraid to ask but they were also paying a little closer of attention. Maybe at this point they were learning to believe what he was saying and pray about it rather than peppering him with questions and rebukes. They had just been caught arguing instead of praying. If you go back to the beginning of the story, that's part of what's being exposed here, they're arguing with the scribes rather than asking their father for help. They seem to doubt his patience and mercy after witnessing it being displayed. Jesus is merciful even saying, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. He's merciful even saying, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? It's still mercy being displayed. At the end of the day, the issue with the disciples is the same issue that the father had. They're doubting. They have some faith. They do believe they're following him around, but they're doubting. And that is exposed in the prayerlessness. And so Jesus is teaching them not just to believe and to pray, but to pray about your belief. Help my unbelief. Help the doubt. Keep me from wavering between belief and unbelief. May God help us to not doubt. Or more precisely, we might say, may God help us to doubt less and to believe more confidently and to pray more fervently. May God help us to believe and to pray, thus helping our unbelief. This section here really is an emphasis, as I mentioned from the outset, on having faith and prayer, encouraging us to believe and to pray. And that's highlighted with two specific verses here, verse 23 and verse 29. Verse 23, all things are possible to him who believes. Let's hang our hat there as children of the living God. All things are possible to him who believes. Everything. There's nothing in you or outside of you that can get in the way of what God has the ability to accomplish. 
But don't forget verse 29. This kind can come out, cannot come out by anything but prayer. So let's hang our hat there as children of the living God. Not just believing that God can do all things, but asking him to do it. Acknowledging that we do believe that he can do all things. Therefore, we're coming to him again and again, petitioning and asking him to accomplish his will in our lives. To be the remedy that we know that he can be. Asking that he would give us faith. Faith looks different at different seasons in our lives. There are times when faith is a struggling faith. When we're just fighting to put one foot in front of the other and to keep on moving forward, trekking along in the path that God has called us to. Other times it's a clinging faith. We're hanging on for dear life, not even having the strength to put one foot in front of the other, but we're inching our way like an inchworm along. Sometimes it's resting faith, and we can rest because of the season that we're in, but those seasons are going to come and to go, and so we we fight to believe with our whole hearts, and we prove that we believe by seeking Him in prayer. When we fail to believe and we fail to pray, we are not trusting God for what He alone can do. This happens when we rely on our own strength. We take His power or authority for granted. The disciples here, they didn't fail for lack of effort, but for lack of believing prayer, of asking God to work in them and through them and to help the little boy and his father. The leper In the early chapters of Mark, chapter 1, doubted Christ's willingness. The father in the story here in Mark 9 doubted Christ's ability. What are you doubting about him? What do you doubt? Is it his willingness, his ability, his love, his mercy? He's a Christ who does not change, has never changed, and will never change. You can trust Him. Do you trust Him and Him alone to accomplish all the spiritual good in your life? We are too prone too often to leaning on our own understanding. We are often guilty of striving in our own strength. We are tempted time and again to presume upon His power and His authority. Don't doubt, but believe. All things are possible to him who believes, but it's an active, ongoing trust in him. You cannot live today on yesterday's grace. You cannot live today on yesterday's love or yesterday's mercy or yesterday's power. The disciples are finding that out here. They had just seen the Son of the living God, the eternal one in all his glory. Now they're back in the valley. We need him today and every day. And you can live on Christ today. He is enough for you and he'll be enough tomorrow, which is very much in keeping with the song that we'll close with in 
just a minute. Yet not I, but Christ through me. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. How strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray for immense help in understanding it and applying it. We pray, God, that you'll be gracious to us, that we might be increasingly convinced of your unmatched power, and that you'll help us to believe not only that you are omnipotent, but that your might is reserved for your people, and that you act on our behalf. God, we pray for grace as your might is revealed to us, that we might have an increased measure of confidence in it, resulting in us seeking your face and asking you, begging you, trusting you to act on behalf of your people to accomplish all of your good pleasure. God, we thank you that you are both willing and able to save and that you do save to the uttermost all who come to you in faith. God, will you grant faith and repentance to those who do not know you. And God, for your children here this morning, we pray that you would give us greater measures of faith. We believe, oh, help our unbelief. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.